Welcome to the Control-Alt-Azure podcast. I'm Yusip. And I'm Tobias. Join us for a journey in the cloud. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Control-Alt-Azure. I am Tobias and I'm back again with Yusip Ruene. What's up? Hey, Toby, glad to be here. Um, I paid a visit to my chiropractic this morning. So, uh -oh. yeah. What's I, the I verdict? Normally, the verdict is, uh-oh. Uh -oh. Um, <laughs> normally, I, I visit this, this, uh, this services company. I think they have eight people working there, but I only, only meet with one of them because I like him. And I visit there every six months or so. So this morning, I go in there, and it's one-hour appointment. And, and they, they started with, hey, you see, we sort of updated our customer management software, so we couldn't find any details for you. Have you been here after 2016? And I said, yeah, I think so. No, you haven't. It's been five years since your last week. <laughs> uh -oh. Well, well time, time flies when you're doing podcasts, right? <laughs> so I go in there and I spend the whole hour with him, him giving me instructions and, and looking at my movements and joints and everything. And the verdict is that he's rarely seen somebody with such, um, how do you say, locked up hip and joints. So I, I got this massive list of YouTube videos. You need to look in this, you need oh, to no. do this, 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 and this. And I'm like, okay, and I'm paying for this. Not complaining though, super happy with it. And, and it, it's always helpful. But the, the idea here is that you kind of think that you do something frequently and suddenly it's five years and you haven't really done it unless yeah. you've stopped and focus and think I need to do this now. It makes sense. I uh, actually spent some time with, when I had my personal trainer for going to the gym, um, the first 15 minute of every single session, he forced me to do like flexibility exercises where I was stretching because he said, look, I can see that you're sitting probably at a desk or something like that, either that or you're crouching in a, a sofa playing video games. And sure enough, I'm, I'm sitting at a desk a lot and I'm standing by the desk, but he could see that. And just doing these exercises for, I think I went 20 or, or 30 times with this guy, it made such a difference. And yeah. then the same thing with the chiropractor, you go there and they, they tell you to do a couple of things and then you realize, wow, I thought I was you know flexible and had great movement. And they tell you, no, 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 you don't. You have to do these things and then you realize what you have to work for. Isn't it funny that when you work in IT and if you do consulting and you visit the customer and, and that customer's business is not IT or technology, you have a look at their on-prem and cloud and whatever and you are like, yeah, you need to do this and this and this because I can see as a professional <laughs> that this is how it should be done and that's perfectly acceptable. But when you take care of your own health and fitness, it's like, well, yeah, I don't really have time for this. Yeah, I mean, we also need professionals to help us here. So I, I think that's uh, chiropractors and personal trainers, everything. That's great stuff. And, uh, it is. It's, it's beneficial. So what have you been up to lately? So for me, it's uh, not so much about moving around or fitness or anything like that. I actually got my first haircut for six months. Um, wow. So it's, it's quite a difference. When I look in the mirror, I look like 22 again. I don't know if that's a good or a bad thing. Uh, but it's pretty, you know, with the situation in the world, I didn't want to go to a, a hairdresser before, but now they kind of made, every, you know, all the precautions that they can. So they, they spread out the chairs and they wear gloves, which is 
kind of interesting uh, because they they kind of put the scissors into the gloves a couple of times and hurt themselves. Uh, they, they didn't put the scissors into my skull, so I'm happy for yeah. that. Um, so yeah, haircut after half a year finally. So you know, not much is up, but that was a great relief. I feel great. So that's the highlight of your week. It is a highlight of my week. It's <laughs> it's the highlight of half the year. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Alrighty. So this episode is about embracing Azure Container instances. And we've, we've had a couple of episodes previously on, on different container-related services or, or technologies. Perhaps just quickly, if there's somebody in the audience who hasn't worked with containers, so what are they? What's a container and why should I care? Right. It's a great question. And I think we could do one or more episode only on that question alone because it can be many things. But I like the condensed version would be something like, uh, you package your application and dependencies, which can include metadata and a manifest with information. Uh, it's a version-controlled code base, which also then equals a version-controlled packaged outcome, uh, which is pretty slick. And then you can easily replicate this application across developers, teams, and production workloads. Uh, so the same thing runs anywhere. You can put it in AWS, in Google Cloud, in Microsoft Azure. You can put it in your local machine. You can put it on a server can put it anywhere where uh, containers are supported. And you might hear something coming up that's in the last couple of years, this has became a popular thing, which is to con containerize your applications. Uh, so it's very popular with microservices and when you spread your workloads um, horizontally as well. This is what we did with my company where I took the applications we had, which were kind of a monolithic application, broke that down into kind of more a microservice type of application hosted inside of containers. So now we can run it on the desktop, we can run it in the cloud, we can run it on a server, we can run it wherever we want, and it's gonna execute exactly the same way. So that's, I guess that's the short version of what containers are. Yeah, and as I recall, you can have different base operating systems for your container-based applications. So often if I start working with whatever I'm, I'm planning on implementing, I've, I need to choose if it's going to be Linux or Windows-based. Yep. And the idea there is just like with Hyper-V and virtualization, is that I will build my solution to support that base operating system. And then the future platform where, where, where I plan on running that container needs to expose that same base operating system. But I don't need to replicate the whole operating system settings and services and all the files, but instead just my application, whatever the application requires. Yeah, exactly that. Um, and I think that today still the most common type of platform is Linux containers. And there is a, a growing support for the Microsoft or Windows-based containers as well. Uh, but I still today see mostly Linux in production workloads. And at least that I'm, uh, coming in contact with and everything that we operate that I am in charge of is also Linux based uh, and we run .NET. So we have .NET Core 3.1, the latest incarnation, and it just works. It is very fun to see that we can reuse our skills. So coming back to what our containers and when you containerize your application, it doesn't mean that you have to learn everything again. It's just a different way to run the application, but you as a developer, it's still C-sharp if that's your thing. You can, of course, build on anything else. In my case, we build .NET Core. Uh, right now, it's 3.1. Soon, this will be moved to .NET 5, and it just works. 
and it works the same way for me and for everyone in my team and when I put it in the cloud. One of the first production uh, container services that I set up was Minecraft server. So somebody had created the setup for running your own Minecraft server within a Docker container. So that was still the time when my kids were really playing Minecraft. Since then, they've moved on to Counter-Strike. And I understand the new thing, the new cool game is Valorem or something like this. It's still in private preview, but apparently that's the thing now. So (laughs) Minecraft server, they wanted to play with with their friends, but to enable certain hacks within the game. So I pulled down the container that somebody had created for hosting Minecraft server. I modified that slightly, and then I spun it up on, on one of my servers. And I was amazed how easy it was, and this was years ago already. So today, if I want to work, create, run, test containers locally, I would be using Docker Desktop on, on Windows 10, and the community edition for Docker Desktop is free. And that leverage is a local Hyper-V VM. So you, you would need a Windows 10, the Hyper-V role needs to be enabled. And, and beyond that, you just do a setup, next, 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 finish, reboot, install for Docker Desktop. And that's all you really need for f- working locally with containers. And a good side note here is if, if someone never did that and they want to just try it out, install Docker Desktop on Windows 10, install Visual Studio 2019, and when you create a new, for example, web application, you can tick a box that say host this in a container. And when you just hit F5, that project is going to run from inside of a container from your local box supported by Docker then on your operating system. That's pretty cool. It is. Uh, nowadays, it's made so easy and as you said it's one checkbox you tick and that's all you need to understand about it uh one uh, another side note here i was working with azure api management a couple of weeks ago and out of curiosity i wanted to run a custom api locally in a container but then i also wanted to expose that api to azure api management and there's an option for self-service gateways So I deployed the Azure API Management self-service gateway locally, and it's a container. So that runs on Docker Desktop, and that in turn needs to connect with my custom API in another container. And that exposes that API to Azure so that I could leverage that API. And what I found out is that the setup is fairly simple, but you need a working DNS. So I didn't have an enterprise-grade DNS, meaning a local active, Active Directory. So my API management self-service gateway was unable to find the other container uh, in a different virtual network because, the, because of the missing DNS. So hopefully somebody listening on this isn't going to spend two hours debugging that problem and doing <laughs> ping and trace routes for 20 minutes trying to figure out why isn't this working. And moving from local now to the cloud, meaning Azure in in this example, there's plenty of options on how can you run containers in the cloud. So top of my head is Azure Kubernetes service. And we did uh, go through this in episode 19, um, fairly truly on setting it up and, and what's essential in there. What other options do we have in the cloud to run containers? And so we also have for app services where you can run containers. 
So you can let your app service run on a single container. So instead of the, the default hosted platform for your app service, you can make that run inside of a app service in a container, uh, which is also a pretty nice way to package things. Coming back again, when you design things in Visual Studio and you get this question to run as a container, when you later publish it, you can also publish it to run inside of a container, of course. And uh, so I, I really like that. Uh, and then all the clouds out there, AWS, um, you know, Google, they, they also have containerized workloads and they have production grade uh, clouds ready to accept whatever you put in, into their containers. Um, and then of course there's other third party uh, integrations with Azure. You have Red Hat OpenShift, which is also integrated into Azure. And I don't know, there's a plethora of options and I, I don't think we could even spend an entire episode talking about all of them. Uh, just even if we had a plain list, because pretty much every single vendor in the cloud space today are embracing containers one way or the other. Um, so if, if you're on a different cloud than Azure, or if you're on Azure and you haven't looked at containers, there's going to be a lot of options for you to do that. Um, but I guess today the, the thing we're talking about is Azure Container Instances. And we talked about this in episode 18, I believe. Uh, how we can use ACIs and ACR together. And, and ACR is Azure Container Registry, where you can put your images. So talking about ACI, uh, since we already talked about ACR and AKS, what is ACI? So ACI allows you to run containers, or let's say ACI allows you to run a container, but you can have multiple instances of the same container or different containers. And the the relation between ACI, Azure Container Instances, and ACR is that ACI pulls containers from registries. This could be your own. So you set up an ACR, you publish your container images in ACR, and then you deploy from ACR to ACI. Or you could use public registries, such as the one on Docker Hub. That's the place where I found the Minecraft server years ago. And I would pull that locally because ACI didn't, didn't exist at the time. So is, is your workflow uh, when you employ ACI is that you create your service and, and containerize that one. And then you push that image to ACR. And whenever you need to spin up a new test or dev environment or even a production instance, you pull that image to ACI and spin it up. Yeah, it's a great question. And again, like a, um, a long-time consultant back in the day, the answer is, of course, it depends on all the variables. Uh, but this is a, a pretty common workflow where whatever I do in dev and whatever I test locally, when I know that works and I commit it and send that into my code repository, I have my build agents, pick that up and build it, containerize it, create the actual container image, and then send this off to ACR if I have a private registry, which I do with, with our companies. Uh, so we have our own protected builds or source code uh, in there or pushing it to uh, one of the public repositories out there if it is an open source project or something else. And then my ACIs pick that up. Like you said, it, when you spin up an ACI, you tell it, this is going to be a container. It's going to use that image. Now get me one instance that has 14 gigs of RAM and two CPUs or whatever. You can define this in the manifest. Um, so that's one way to, to do it. Um, but I never start in the angle where I say, this is going to be running in ACI. And therefore, I design it in a certain way. I know already from start, this is going to be running probably in the cloud. 
So it might make sense to containerize it because then I can plug it into ACI or AKS or something else. Uh, when it comes to ACI, of course, like with anything that you put into the cloud that is hosted inside of a container, there can be different capabilities for different types of uh, container systems. So with ACIs, you can map and mount drives. You can do different things. When you use AKS, that might work slightly differently. But from the application perspective, if you do file.io and just read something and you have a mapped folder, that's going to work exactly the same whether this is in an ACI or an AKS. So therefore, I, I never say that I'm going to put this in an a ACI because I design or try to de design the application in such a way that it's generic enough to be hosted anywhere because in two years, ACIs might not exist, right? So then I don't want, want to have to rewrite everything. So with uh, container instances or some, some good use cases for container instances that we do is kind of burst computing where some of the things we do require us to run with a lot of uh, memory and a lot of CPUs, but only for a brief moment when we analyze things and we crunch data. So what happens is we have a function or a couple of functions. They're doing things, looking into some queues. When something comes into that queue and that message is of the type, analyze this data. And then it points to a storage account and says this storage account has that data. Maybe there's 500,000 items or 5 million items that needs to be processed and crunched and building stats and whatever around that. Instead of doing that from the function, which would then require that to heavily scale out during that period, which is a little bit more unpredictable, at least this is our experience in production, then we know for a fact if we instead from the function say, you know what, Mr. Function? create a new ACI, a container group. Inside of it, you put two instances or two containers of this type, pull it from this image, you're gonna crunch this data. And then the application just picks up, it gets a pointer to the storage account, and it says, from this storage account, you're gonna do this. And then we do all the heavy calculations in there. So you can use that as an example use case. You have an application, it's working well, but you get burst workloads that you can predict. And I know exactly, if I have 5 million items in this type of database that I need to crunch, I know what's required. I know I'm going to need six container instances, and they need to be running for six hours, and I need them to be on 14 gigs of RAM and four CPUs. When that's done, I kill all of them, and they're gone. And that does not impact anything in the function, in the app services, in my web app, nothing. I don't have to scale up the entire function app or the web app because most of the time we have the function and the app services on the same app service plan if we're on the premium two uh, tier, for example, and we have three instances. I don't want to dynamically scale up and down here because that incurs quite a hefty cost. But with ACIs, you only pay when you use it. So I throw it on and I do my hammering and then I kill it and turn it off again. And I don't make any changes to the rest of the infrastructure. So that's also uh, a very nice use case that we have uh, where we make use of it. Makes, makes perfect sense. In essence, then, if I want to test this whole thing end-to-end -end without building a massive automation first, uh, I would create my custom container-based workload, let's say a custom API, for example, test that locally with Docker Desktop. If it works, I can publish directly to ACR from within Visual Studio. Then I can go to Azure Portal, and from ACR, I can point to the image click on it and say, please deploy this as an ACI. And I define whatever I want in Azure portal and it spins up the ACI for me. So that's one easy way to just see 
what are the components in here before you actually start automating and, and, and creating the sort of scripts, perhaps using Azure CLI or PowerShell to, that, that spins everything up and kills them when you don't need them anymore. Yeah, makes sense. So are you using multi-container groups? Because that's something that wasn't available initially with ACI. Now it's available, but it's restricted to Linux containers. And the idea, as I understand it, is that you can have multiple con- containers in a group and they might be uh, tangled together in the sense that you would perhaps have front-end and back-end logic and they need to be side-by-side. Yep, we actually do that. And again, coming back to the same use case where we, we run and crunch data and do analytics or analysis, this is exactly how we do it. When we define our uh, container files, which is pretty much a YAML file where you say, this is the manifest or this is the configuration of this ACI. You can have more than one container in there. So we have uh, multiple containers in our ACI. Most of the time, our containers are doing the same thing. So it's not front-end versus back-end or an API versus front-end or something like that. In our case, everything is in a, on the back-end, uh, kind of asynchronously decoupled from the web experience. So that makes it easier to kind of scale out the microservice management of these things. Um, so an ACI, in our case, can contain four containers, but this, the image of those containers are the same. It's just that we are spreading out the workload of how they work because it's microservices. So if we put 14 gig uh, of RAM and four CPUs on a container instance, that is shared across all of these four containers that we put inside of them because not a single processing will require that much. So that's also a great way to make use of um, all the CPU and RAM that you can get. Because otherwise, I would just say, get me a super big um, ACI with 100 gigs of RAM and, and 64 cores. That's not possible. There's a limit on 14 gigs and four CPUs. That's why we use it. And then we need multiple ACIs. And inside of them, we can have multiple containers deployed. Uh, but the, the true way to scale here is by having multiple ACIs. So you have for every, if you deploy an, an ACI, you can deploy a similar one or exactly the same one with a new name just next to it. So you can deploy 10 of them and have one container inside of them or two or five, whatever you want. Uh, but the most common way to, to scale here is by creating a new ACI. And then you can scale for every ACI or container group that you create, you get another set of 14 gig and four cores. So if you have 10 container groups running in parallel, then you have 140 gigs and 40 cores, right? So this is a way to scale with this type of burst workload. And it takes only half a minute or so to spin it up. So it's not like a VM or if you use, like we talked in the past about AKS with Azure Kubernetes services, when you scale that up, you know, it can take quite some time to actually get a new node in your node pool. It's gonna be provisioned, it's gonna be deployed, it's gonna pull your image, it's gonna be uh, you know, connected to your cluster in the right way and load balance and whatever. This way, because everything we do is asynchronous and decoupled from like the users and everything else, everything happens asynchronously on the backend. We can just say, you know what, let's spin it up as the ACIs, bam, it's up. It doesn't need to be part of the cluster or a cluster because it gets a pointer using Key Vault and managed identity. It connects to a storage account and gets the data, crunch it, run analysis, produce a report, put that back into the storage account, send a signal to a queue saying, I'm done. That's it. And then the containers die. My perception of ACI has always been that it's, a bit like AKS, but much more simpler in the sense that you spin up the instances, you have a nice graphical interface, you also have the scripting and the APIs. 
but that's mostly it. Um, so on pricing then, and I, whenever we talk about pricing, I'm reflecting back on the Windows, uh, no, sorry, the web application firewall pricing. And I, I started looking that up when we did that episode, perhaps it was episode 10 or so. And it was so complex to understand what the pricing model was at the time. So I looked up pricing for ACI and it's relatively simple. So you end up paying for memory and virtual CPUs within a given container group. And for memory and virtual CPU, you pay per uh, gigabyte second or per vCPU second that you're consuming the service. So these two add up, and depending on how many seconds your container group is active, it ends up uh, tallying up, and at the end of the month, you pay that amount. So the examples Microsoft had on the pricing page for ACI was that you have this and this sort of workload, one virtual CPU, one gig of RAM, so that's the lowest, and you run that for five minutes on one day and they came out, out, out with some fairly super low number. So I did the calculation myself, and I wanted to have an ACI instance running for the duration of the whole month, so 24-7 for the whole month. And a month has about 2.6 million seconds. I needed to Google this because I couldn't count that in my <laughs> head. And thus the, the cost becomes one container group times... 2.6 million seconds times one gig times the price. And the price is 0.000012 euro. So for the container group, meaning the memory, you pay about three euro a month for the simplest container. On top of this, you pay for the virtual CPU. It's the same formula. And that's about 28 euro. So about what, $32 that adds up to about 31 euro or about $35 for one container group running one container instance with one virtual CPU and one gig of RAM. Yeah, I think that sounds about right. I, uh, I did these calculations also when we put things into the cloud in containers the first time. And sometimes we had containers running 24 seven at pretty high scale. So we had 25 containers running with big, not one gig, but 12 gigs, which at that point was the limit. Now it's 14 in the region we're using. You know, the, the cost comes with it and it, it grows quickly. But then when we don't need it, we can kill it or just scale it down just like that. So this is pretty slick. And obviously, if you spin up a Linux virtual machine with, with the lowest hardware available, it's cheaper than the 32 euro. But at the same time, you do need to maintain that. You need to do patching. You need to do all sorts of things. So the ACI is ideal if you have a fairly neatly specified workload and you know that I can run this for a minute or five minutes or 30 minutes, but then I can kill it before I need it the next time. Yeah. All righty. I think that's all we had for ACI. So now we've covered ACR, ACI, and AKS in a total of three episodes. Yep. Uh, thank you for tuning in and until next time. See you then. Thank you for tuning in to the Control Alt Azure podcast. Find out more and read the show notes on controlaltazure.com. 
stay tuned. Thank you.